podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello everyone, Menas here. Just a quick announcement. This is not the Australian Cricket Podcast. This is my very new show that I've started with Paul called the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. It's covering the WBBL and BBL. So go on and subscribe to the Big Smash Cricket Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to all your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of the Big Smash Cricket Podcast brought to you by Rebel. I'm one of your hosts, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menas, and joining me is Paul Dennett. How are you, Paul? Wonderful, Menas. It's a privilege to be here. Now, Paul, I'm so excited that we are able to take the listeners on a journey through the Big Bash tournament, both the men's and the women's Big Bash. Are you as excited as I am about this journey? Absolutely. And just in the last few days, you can sense that there's an an anticipation in Sydney, and I'm sure in the rest of Australia, for the Big Bash. We had an eight-page lift-out on the Big Bash in the Sunday Telegraph on the weekend. Uh, Got some jealous responses from my friends in England saying if only they could have that level of interest paid to cricket. And so the momentum is building. It's going to be wonderful. And in this podcast, we're going to talk argue and discuss all the big issues in the tournament. It's, the show is going to come out every Monday and Thursday. We're going to have guests. We're going to have play interviews. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. Listeners, I'm sure you're going to enjoy all we've got in store for you. The Big Bash is full of excitement and we can't wait to bring it to you. In the very first episode of the show, we're going to talk about some of the big issues facing the tournament. We're going to preview the Stars and the Thunder, last year's finalists, and see how they're shaping up for the season ahead. And then to wrap this episode up, we're going to look ahead at the Women's Big Bash League that kicks off this weekend in Sydney. But Paul, in the nature of the Big Bash, let's start with the big issues facing the Big Bash. And I want to start off with... The Big Bash versus the traditional cricket calendar. We saw last year the weakness of the West Indies touring party allowed the Big Bash to really hijack the summer. What do you think is going to happen this summer? Well, I take issues slightly on the word hijack and I'd swap it for save. I think that the best thing that happened to cricket last summer was that the Big Bash exploded in popularity because, as you said, West Indies were uncompetitive and then the Sydney Test match got effectively rained out. Normally, it would have been an utter disaster for cricket. Instead, it was a triumph because of the Big Bash. The question for you, though, Manners, is I think that the, the narrative has been, oh, well, the Big Bash succeeded because the international cricket season was a dud. I'd flip that around and say, what about if it was the opposite of that? What about if the Big Bash succeeded in spite of the international season being no good? And if we get a better summer this time around with Pakistan coming out, that could even make it better for the Big Bash. What do you think of that? Look, I think it's a tough one because I think, you know, you're going to have a crowded cricket calendar over the summer. But what really came to the fore last year is people love going to Big Bash games. And I think that this summer we'll see the Big Bash stand on its own two feet. But the true test for me, Paul, is I guess not this summer, but the summer after when the, the English tourists come out and the Ashes normally dominates the Cricket Canada, seeing how the Big Bash fares against the Ashes. But I think no doubt this summer that the Big Bash and the International Summer will stand side by side in media retention, in coverage, in fan excitement. Everybody, I think, is ex- is excited as you are about the Big Bash. Well, on that Ashes point, it's an interesting one. I was in England in 2013 and the first Ashes test was an absolute triumph. And a couple of days later, there was their own, um, their NatWest T20 Blast. There was a game on at the Oval on, I think it was a Friday night. And I caught the start of the coverage and the Oval was sold out. And you could hear the excitement and amazement in the commentators' voices. And they all said, 
it's like the nation has fallen for cricket once again and everyone just wants to watch cricket. And I think that next summer, if the Ashes is particularly exciting, it could be just people say, you know, we want more of this and let's switch it over to the Big Bash and, and bring it on. And the same could happen this time around. If, if Pakistan uh, happened to knock Australia over in Brisbane and, and everyone gets talking about it again, it could flow through to an even bigger Big Bash than we expected. So the Big Bash and the international cricket calendar side by side. Let's see how that battle plans out. But on that point, let's talk about the continued growth of the BBL, the crowds, the international context and potentially huge TV rights available for the tournament. It has captured the imagination of the public and we saw a massive increase of, of crowd numbers. Last year, the average crowd figure was a tick under 30,000. That's an amazing average crowd figure, isn't it, Paul? Well, especially given that the season uh, before that was 23 and the season before that was 18,000, and they weren't bad. We were happy with those crowds. So to suddenly be a tick under 30,000, as you say, is utterly extraordinary. And the question is, what would happen if it happened again this year? If there was another sizable jump and we suddenly were with crowds into the mid-30s, where there's some pretty big scalps that the Big Bash could knock off. That there's the the IPL, which stated average figure is thirty two thousand eight hundred. The AFL thirty three thousand one hundred, and then the English Premier League is thirty six thousand, and that's currently the third biggest for all sports uh, in the world. That theoretically the Big Bash could pop into number three. Could could the Big Bash be on the podium of world sports events by the end of this summer, Paul? It's not beyond the realms of possibility. Now the cynics would say, well, it's very much easier to have a big uh, average crowd for a tournament that lasts only for a few weeks as opposed to those that last for months. But by the same token, those ones have some, in some cases had over 100 years to develop loyalty and tribalism and habits. Um, so the Big Bash in this, its sixth season, to be being talked about in, the, in that way, is, um, it's simply stunning. It is simply stunning, Paul, and what you and I are going to be doing during the run of this podcast is we're going to attract this average crowd figure and we're going to match it up against the tournaments around the world and hopefully by the end of this uh, podcast and the Big Bash, the, the, the Big Bash will be at the top of the tree. Well, that would be pretty impressive given that. I think um, we have got the small manner of the NFL, which I think is about 64,000, so if we could get an average crowd at that level, um, we'll certainly be having a tournament to, to remember. Now, one question that has come up with the amazing success success of the tournament is, should the Big Bash look to expand the competition? There's been radical concepts of bringing in teams from New Zealand or perhaps bringing in teams from Tasmania. What do you think? (laughs) Bringing another team from Tasmania. Always forget about the Hurricanes. (laughs) Look, my my instinct as a cricket lover is saying, yes, we should expand. We should have a 34-team Big Bash with teams in China and India and everywhere. But in reality... The hard thing is that obviously it's not the only form of the game and the Sheffield Shield has had to be uh, changed dramatically in order to fit fit the big bash in. If we were to add teams, that would squeeze the shield out further. Um, Are we willing to do that? I mean, we could. We've got uh, pretty good weather in late winter and um, uh, early autumn here. We could push the season season wider. But the thing is, with average crowds of almost 30,000, if you're going to bring a new team in, you really want them to be able to offer something. So in theory, I'd love a New Zealand team. But when you look at the stadium size over there and the fact that cricket isn't as big in New Zealand as it is in Australia, um, really, it's, it's, it's Auckland um, Eden Park has a capacity of 42,000 for cricket. I think that's the only option. And I'd want to get some strong marketing guarantees that they're going to get crowds pretty close to that every game in order to make it worthwhile. But, you know, in theory, it would be pretty cool. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if the talent is there to expand. You know, you look at pl- possible places, New Zealand, Canberra, Geelong, Gold Coast, Fremantle, maybe the Darwin Daredevils would be a good outfit. I just like the name. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not sure expansion should be a priority, as you say. Will it squeeze out the shield? And will there be the talent to, once it's all spread out around the comp, will it just disperse the talent too much? So I think consolidation is the key and build on what they've already got. Before we move on now, Paul, I just want to just touch on the cultural uh, currency that the Big Bash might offer this summer. We saw so many things go viral as a result of the Big Bash last year. Who can forget Watermelon Boy? There was the infamous Chris Gale incident. Uh, going back, there's been the Shane Warne versus Marlon Samuels fight almost on the middle of the MCG. I wonder what it will be that captures the imagination this summer. Well, I'm going to say I think it's going to be something on the field. And I think this is one of the great things that's happened with the Big Bash over, over the last few years. When it began, it was very much a contrived competition, all about marketing and lots of gimmicks. And the critics would say, well, compare that to you know the A-League, the soccer, its main summer competition, which is a very traditional, legitimate competition. Well, I think the Big Bash has really started to make strides in that direction. And I think that what people were talking about last summer, things like Travis Head's 100 on New Year's Eve at the, uh, at the Adelaide Oval in front of 45,000 people, or Jake Lehman hitting a six off his first ball in the BBL to win the game for them. I think that those sorts of things are going to be talked about more, and the legitimacy of the product on the field will continue to take strides. I think you're right, Paul. And there's some of the big issues facing the Big Bash this summer. We're going to be back in a moment with previews of the Thunder and the Stars. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. There's something for everyone this Christmas at Revel. Like the Garmin Vivo Fit 3 Club Bundle, now $96, save $62. Score the men's Nike Poly Legend Tees and Tanks, two for $60. In-store only. Revel, Christmas HQ. Shop in-store and online today. Welcome back to the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. And now time for our team previews. Up until the men's Big Bash begins, we're going to be previewing two teams per episode to give you all the ins and outs of your favourite side. And I thought we'd start off the run by previewing last year's finalists. Let's start with the defending champions, the Sydney Thunder. Now, Paul, I've got a, a hot tip for you, a hot take for this very first episode of the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. The defending champions are without doubt the weakest team on paper in this Big Bash. I disagree with that, and I think that I, I hope that listeners out there can can memorise this because um, I don't think that they're going to come last, and I think we'd like to remind men of that as as the season goes by. When they, I think they will have some success. Well, listeners to the Australian Cricket Podcast will know that I've not been a big fan of the Thunder, but I have come into this analysis with a high level of objectivity. And I look at the squad and the way it shapes up, and we're about to go through it. There are too many holes in this Thunder squad for them, not even to consider defending the title, but I would suggest making the semifinals is too far, and perhaps even winning more than one or two games will be too much for the Thunder. So let's start off with their story. They squared, They made the final for the first time last year. The story was last year, Mike Hussey v Dave Hussey, and the Thunder were able to send Mike Hussey off a winner. But there's no Mike Hussey this year. And in fact, I think that the fact that he's not there and Shane Watson is the captain leaves a big hole in this side. Well, obviously, Hussey's one of the greatest players of all time and he had a good season last season and he's a definite loss for them. But I th- I've just got to pull you up, I think, that Menas, you seem to have softened a little bit. We did have a, a chat about this the other day where you were very gung-ho on the fact they weren't going to win a single game. No, I don't think they will. I think they'll be lucky to win one or two. Okay, I was Lucky. 
Yeah, okay. I was Lucky to... to win one or two. All right. Um... The first argument, listeners. So let's start off with two big issues facing him. Andre Russell, big hitting West Indian all-rounder, is under severe doubt facing a possible drug violation charge. You seem to think he'll get off. I don't think Andre Russell will get off. I think he's missed the drug test and he will face a sanction and that will harm the Thunder's squad. Oh, it would certainly harm the Thunder's squad if he missed out. And he may well miss out. I'm just saying my instinct is that he will probably be allowed to play. He he played overnight in the Bangladesh Premier League, scored 46 and took three for 16 in, in a winning semi-final effort. Um, so he is a massive player. And if, if he is, uh, is rubbed out, then yeah, I agree. That's going to be a massive hole for the Thunder to fill. But I, I tend to think he'll be there. Shane Watson comes into the tournament under an injury cloud. He'll certainly be a doubtful starter for the first couple of games. But you have to question his fitness going forward at his age with a long history of injuries. You wonder sort of what level of participation he will be able to bring to the tournament. So you take out Russell and Watson. They're the two big all-rounders for the Sydney Thunder side. Yeah, but I don't think that... um, I mean, Watson's played his whole career with the threat of injuries over his head. I think he'll miss these two games and come back in and and play the rest of the tournament and do well. I think he'll be... um, I think he'll be one of the stars of the tournament. I think that he should have had a better international career than he did. I think he's still good enough to be playing international cricket. And I think this is the perfect vehicle for him. <laughs> First crazy idea. What are <laughs> still playing international cricket? God. And Ball. there's also there's Owen Morgan, who's um, their, their international player, who's he's a sort of person non grata in the English setup at the moment because he refused to travel to Bangladesh for security reasons. And he was going to be the captain of the England One Day side on that tour, as he had been. So he's come in for a lot of criticism. If ever there's a man with a point to prove, it's him. Yeah, and he chose the Thunder just because they wear green like his home nation. Now, moving on to the pace bowling in the Thunder side, this is another area of weakness. Clint Mackay, who had a great season last year for the Thunder, I think this is going to be one season too many for him. He didn't perform so well in the finals, and I don't think he'll be able to carry on the way he started last summer. I think he'll be the bowler of the tournament. Um, I think he is definitely not too old. I wonder why he actually got left out of the Australian squad. It's like everyone just forgot about him and the selectors just said, oh, well, um, he's played really well for us at international level, but we're just going to go go away from him. He's like a one-trick pony. As soon as you've seen his slower ball, you know what's coming. Well, if that's the case, then in the recent T20 blast in England, they've got a, a list of the 50 best-performing bowlers and he comes in at number three with an economy rate of 6.3 runs per over throughout the whole tournament. And one of the only two to beat him was none less than Dale Stain. So a couple of months ago, he could dominate an entire tournament in England. He's only 33. To say that he's over it is, uh, I'd venture to say, untenable. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Now, uh, the, next, the next fast bowler that comes in and a huge doubt is Gurinder Sandu. He endured... A nightmare season last year. It's, it was so bad, I'm struggling to get the words out. His figures for the BBL last year, one for 200 in 19 overs. That's a runs per over of over 10, and the average, 200. Uh, reads pretty well for a statistician, not so well for Gurinder Sandu. I wonder if he can bounce back from that challenging year. I just wonder if, if like so many Australian cricketers, he's trying to bowl too fast. And... Um, I'd have a huge question mark over him. If I was um, if I was that side, I would be saying that unless he really shapes up in the first game or two, then he's going to spend the entire season not playing. But look, I don't want to be all doom and gloom about the Thunder. If they are to succeed, someone like Pat Cummins will have to step up. We've seen his performances for the Australian one-day side recently. He's nearing his best form. 
But add to that, the, the exciting part of the Thunder squad is the young batting stars that may be given an opportunity to, to shine on the big stage. You've got Jason Sanger, a 16-year-old batsman who was contracted by New South Wales at the tender age of 16, so he's the youngest ever rookie for New South Wales. Then you've got Jake Doran, who is only 20 but has shown tremendous promise and has been plying his trade for Tasmania. I wonder if he can do something. Add to that, you've got the exciting Ryan Gibson, who top scored for the CA11 in the recent Matador Cup with one century and two fifties. I think there's some exciting young talent there. And I guess an unsung hero from last year is Ben Rora, 35-year-old, has a lot of experience, went to the same school as the War Brothers and Ian Thorpe, hit the winning six to, to hand the Thunder the title. And I think if the Thunder are to win more than one or two games, it will be players like Rora and Cummins mixed with the excitement of youth that gets this Thunder over the line. I just think that they're an astute outfit as well now that they came from, uh, you know, their, their, their seasons prior to last season were absolutely terrible. They won two games in the first season, none in the second, one in the third, two in the fourth. They only actually won four games last season, but then went, went on to win the semi and the final. I feel that there's an intelligence there that will, will hold them in good stead. And I think that Cummins just got overlooked for the Australian test side against Pakistan, which was expected, but there was a chance he could have got, could have got picked. So at least he'll be in the side for the first few games of, of the Big Bash, and he looks to be in fine form. And there's Arjun Nair, the young um, 18-year-old um, spin bowler. I saw him take a couple of wickets against the touring South Africans earlier in the season. He seems to have a bit about him, so he might be one to watch as well. Now let's move on to the, the Thunder's opponents from last year's final, the Melbourne Stars. They are the losing finalists and perennial losing semi-finalists before that. The Melbourne Stars have a very strong, strong squad, coached by Stephen Fleming. It seems like for most of the tournament, they'll be relatively unaffected by Australian selection. Zampa, Maxwell, Faulkner, John Hastings, if he's fit, will all be around at various stages. Marcus Stoinis. I think it's a really strong squad on paper. Add to that the Hollywood value of Kevin Peterson, Luke Wright. Uh, it's, a, it's a great squad on paper, the Stars. You compare that to what we've just seen in the Thunder. This is a real T20 side. Well, it's, it's a, the nature of the tournament is that a few, a few good overs here and there can make a big difference. But I agree with you. This side should do well. I really like Stephen Fleming as a coach. I've, I've been watching uh, quite a deal of the... Um, I watched quite a deal of the India versus New Zealand test series from a few months ago, and he was commentating quite a lot. And I just thought at the time as an Australian, oh, geez, I'd love to have him um, as Australian in the Australian team set up at some point. Um, so he's really astute and really clever. And, of course, with Glenn Maxwell potentially the best player in the world, potentially the worst player in the world, but with a point to prove, um, could, be, could be explosive. Yeah, I've got some players to watch, and on my list is an angry Glenn Maxwell. He's out of favour with Cricket Victoria. He's out of favour with the Australian select- selectors. But he is an unstoppable force in T20 cricket. He's played 163 matches. He averages 24 with the bat, with one memorable century for Australia not so, not so long ago in Sri Lanka. But it is the strike rate of 156 over such a long period that makes him the dangerous player that he is in T20 cricket. Add to that 53 wickets. He is one hell of a T20 player. Add to that the anger that must be inside him. Look out, big bash attacks. And if I was Stephen Fleming, I'd say to him, mate, not play yourself in when you get in, like I'd say to a normal batsman, but you're not allowed to play a reverse sweep until you've faced five balls. Glenn Maxwell needs about five balls to turn from Clark Kent to Superman. Just give yourself that, and then then it's all good. And uh, then there's the other player, Marcus Stoinis, a player of immense all-round 
talent, played in all 10 matches for the Stars last summer. One of those players on the cusp of Australian selection, but not quite good enough at the moment. So I think he'll be a real star for the Stars. His runs per over with the ball of 6.53 was excellent stuff. Add to that his powerful batting. He has everything. You had two all-rounders to Maxwell and Stoinis of James Faulkner and John Hastings if he's not injured. It is a long batting lineup, full of bowling options for the captain. I just think this team is going to go very close to winning the Big Bash. And Hastings and Faulkner I really like. And Hastings, from someone who was our best-performed player in one-day cricket for the last few months, seems suddenly now to be on the outer. Uh, I was watching the coverage the other night, and Ian Healy was talking about the fact that his time in the Australian team may have, may have ended. Um, now, he's been injured, and that's why he hasn't been picked. But with the Australian fast bowlers bowling really well, he could be on the outer. He'll be desperate to press claims for the, the Tour of India coming up. But if he ends up playing a full season for, for, for the Melbourne Stars, then I think he's a really fine player and can bat as well. And Faulkner, um, I'd have him in the test side. That's how highly I rate him. And the final cog in the wheel for the Melbourne Stars is, of course, Kevin Peterson brings the star power. But all I can say is the great thing about him playing for the Stars, it means he's not commentating (laughs) and gives me a break from hearing his rabbiting on in the box. Now, listeners, that was our preview of the Thunder and the Melbourne Stars. We're going to have one more quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with a chat about the Rebel Women's Big Bash League. There's something for everyone this Christmas at Rebel with the Fitbit Blaze $299, save $30. Score the men's Nike Poly Legend Tees and Tanks two for $60, in-store only. Rebel Christmas HQ. Shop in-store and online today. Welcome back to the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Menes. I'm here with Paul. And I want to ask you straight off the bat, Paul, can the Rebel Women's Big Bash League maintain the momentum it gained last year? Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind that it will not just maintain it. I think that it will make a massive stride forward this year. Just as last year, its, its opening season was a, was a triumph. I think this year it's going to take it to another level. And I think that we are witnessing the birth of uh, a wonderful phenomenon and that you know, it's going to be a beacon for women's sport around the world, I think. That's how good this tournament is. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the story for women's cricket is still in its infancy and still being written. So the, the, the momentum can be a lot stronger and they can really build from what they've got. I think there's some key things we've seen already. We've seen an influx of international talent. There's players from South Africa, England, New Zealand, West Indian, and the very first Indian players are coming out here. Harman Prekur will be playing for the Sydney Thunder. So it's really exciting to have this international talent add to that this saturday night the women's big bash will be screened live on channel 10 in prime time on the main network it is the first time in australian sports history that a women's domestic match has been screened in prime time on a main network it just shows how far this tournament has come in one short year absolutely and you know, what were some of the statistics last year when it was... I, don't, I think Channel 10 intended to have only uh, almost all of the games that they were going to show last year on 1HD, their second their second network. But the success of the, the ratings was so good, they bumped a fair few to, to Channel 10 and they were outrating the A-League. There was one game that rated in excess of 700,000 viewers. Um, so bring it on. And the crowds themselves, um, a tournament that had to be not designed last year to maximise live attendance for a variety of reasons, still managed to get a crowd, total crowd figure of over 70,000 for the, um, I think it was 59 games. So that 
over a thousand people attending each one. That alone puts it as the third highest uh, averaging women's sporting league in the world. So not bad for season one. Season two is going to be much bigger, I think. And some of the key things to look out for this summer is that will the players be able to perform better under the spotlight? Last year we saw a lot of players, it was the first time they'd been in cricket games that were televised and we saw a little bit of nerves from the players. So I wonder how they'll react this year, having had the experience of last summer. And also, what we will see this year, I think, is a much, much more stronger and balanced squads across the WBBL. Last year, the Women's Big Bash was thrown together in a few months. This year, they've had a lot more time to recruit and prepare the squad. So I think we're going to see the level of professionalism increase and see a much higher standard of cricket. Yep, definitely. And just even the fact that the tournament's a little bit longer, that the games aren't thrown together so much, that will give some, some players some time to, to recover and perform. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think the appetite is there for top-level women's sport in Australia, and I can't wait. It all kicks off this weekend at North Sydney Over with six games in the Women's Big Bash. Three on Saturday, three on Sunday. I can't wait, Paul. We're heading out there. It's going to be great to get out there to a WBBL game. Certainly will be. And then on Monday, we've got the second edition of our show coming up. Can't wait to bring that to you. Now, listeners, a little treat for you in store now. Uh, a few days ago, Menas was lucky enough and uh, to, to catch up with the Australian coach, Darren Lehman, one of the uh, the true characters of Australian cricket. And as a special bonus, if you didn't catch it on the Australian Cricket Podcast, we're going to play that for you now, just after this final word from Rebel. Listeners, thanks so much for downloading the show. We'll be back next week with the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. There's something for everyone this Christmas at Rebel. With the Garmin Vivo Active HR, $296, save $103. Score the Under Armour Men's and Women's Tech Tees, two for $60, in-store only. Rebel Christmas HQ. Shop in-store and online today. All right, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on the Australian Cricket Podcast. How are you? Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Um, so I've just been reading your really enjoyable book by you and Brian Murgatroyd called Coach, and I think podcasts and book writing are a great forum for reflection. So I guess in this short chat, I thought we could reflect on your Tassie coach. No problems. It'd be a, it'd be a pleasure. Yeah, I wanted to start off. Um, when you took the job as Australian coach, you said you wanted to make a difference as coach. How do you think you've made a difference since you've been the coach of the Aussie side? Oh, I think by bringing a group together, uh, and obviously we're a new group now, re- reinventing ourselves as a, as a group with a younger, younger bunch of players coming through. We had some really good experienced players, and and they were superstars, and we just had to to play play a certain way and have everyone going in the one direction. I think that's probably one area. Uh, bring some fun back into the game, which is important for all of us, uh, coaches as well as players and, and fans. We've got to make sure the fans are enjoying what we're doing. So hopefully I've done that. Uh, obviously it's been a little bit disappointing of late, but that's a challenge as a coach uh, to get the best out of your players and get back performing well again. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be in Adelaide for the victory. So that was a great victory by the, the younger players. But in your book, you sort of go through all the different coaches you had, and what are the, some of the bits from those coaches that you've taken and put into the work you do at the moment? Well, I think it's like a, a cricketer. You, you take bits and pieces from everything as a player. The same as a coach, all the different styles of coaching you have. Yeah, so different from Jeff Marsh's work ethic, John Buchanan's IT background, uh, Greg Chappell's technical background, Barry Rich is the same. So, um, 
I think you grab something from everyone. That, that's the challenge uh, of a coach. You, you can't just be uh, one one style of coach these days with the young guys. You've got to be a bit of everything, to be fair. Yeah, are there any other coaches you bounce ideas off um, at the moment? Yeah, well, you speak to the AFL coaches. There's a few of those I speak to, and, and obviously rugby coaches. So you, you try and Michael Checker, uh, Mal Meninga, um, you know, Don Pike, uh, you know, all those sort of, like Ken Hinckley, anyone that, uh, you know, I, I get a chance to speak to, you always bounce the ideas to become better. And I guess those guys and you have in common that you're right in the media spotlight uh, with regular media, media and social media. How do you find your relationship with the media? I get on the media really well. I think I've always been honest with them, and that, that makes my job a lot easier to, to do. Uh, you know, they have a job to do. Um, and, and when you're not playing well, you, you're going to get criticism, and that's that's always the, the way. That's the way of life. So for, for me, it's a case of being open up front with the media and, and do all the media requests you have, and you're there to promote the game, and you're only a custodian of the game. So that's always the challenge. Yeah, I know from the podcast that when we if we get critical or upset about the results it's just through passion and a great love for the game and I think that comes out a lot on social media and the papers how much Australia really does care about the Australian cricket team well they do they love it and we love it we love it like everyone else does so for us it's always a challenge Uh, you've got to accept the criticism and learn from it and get better Um, so you're right everyone's just passionate about it and they want to see their side do really well and there's nothing wrong with that yeah and how do you deal with being in the goldfish bowl all the time you know the constant travelling and being away from your family and uh, constant demands on your time? Yeah, that's the hardest thing. I mean, we're always sort of 280 days a year, I suppose. So you're only home for a couple of months. So it's hard on the family. They get to travel a little bit, but you're always in and out of hotels. You forget what hotel room you're in. You go to the wrong floor a lot of the time. <laughs> uh, so it's always a challenge travelling in the world, but it's great fun as well. I mean, I have the best job in the world, so I can't complain too much. And you know, one, one day soon I'll, I'll be home and, and relaxing and spending some time with the family, watching the Australian crew team with a beer in hand. Yeah, and I guess you've seen a massive change from your playing days to now being coach, how much the spotlight really is, is on the team the whole time. It's always been the case, especially in the last, uh, I suppose, 15, 20 years with the, the media and uh, you know social media, etc. So, you know, when I first started, beers on ice, and now you put the players on ice. So the game's changed <laughs> as well. So it's always a challenge. Um, the game always evolves, and so does so does work the world. Yeah. Now you've you've written in the book about how you know that old line that Ian Chappell brings up about is a good coach is the one that takes you to the ground in the mornings, and you talk about in the book how that the modern captain is under so much more pressure that as a coach you have to take some of those responsibilities from Steve Smith in this case. What sort of responsibilities do you sort of take from him to lighten the load on a young player with a lot of pressure on him? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Those days are gone. You, you need a coach now, definitely. Players have so many demands. The captain can't do it all. He's got enough to worry about on the ground and his own performance. So, hey, you know, we just get the players prepared, you know, all the analysis for the opposition, what we need to do, how we want to try and do it, and then the captain just goes and does it. Um, and he runs the ship on the ground. So that, that's really important that he can have his own time to prepare because, you know, he's a world-class batsman, best batsman in the world. So we've got to make sure he's batting well, first and foremost, and then he's, he's a fantastic young leader. So we just try and alleviate some pressure so he can just concentrate on the cricket. Yeah, I absolutely love Steve Smith. I just think he's he's got all the makings to end up one of the greats of the game. Do you leave all the on-field stuff to him or do you sort of chat about it? What's what's the role with that? Oh, no, we leave it all to him and we just chat about it. When we have a break, we might have a quick chat. But, you know, he has ideas and they're, they're always good. He, he thinks of things I wouldn't even think of. So that's how, you know, forward thinking he is. So from our point of view, we, we leave it. 
Leave it to him, definitely. Now, one thing that comes out about Steve Smith is how competitive he is in everything he does. That must be great to work with. Yeah, it's always handy. I mean, if we're playing a little handball game, he needs to win every game. <laughs> so he, he doesn't stop. Uh, so yeah, he's really competitive, and that rubs off on the players as well. Now, just back to some of the coaching, you wrote in your book that one of the key aims is to get the players to match their aspiration with their focus, which I thought was really interesting because everyone talks, I'd love to play for Australia, but actually having the focus to do that. How do you do that with the, the top-level players? Well, they're pretty focused full stop now anyway. They're playing for their country. So we just speak about a history, a tradition, uh, and get them really respecting the past and then creating their own uh, culture, their own um, history when they're playing for Australia. In the book, you also talk about your career and how you felt like you could have uh, maybe got more out of your playing time. Do you sort of share that with the players and use your experience to, to guide them? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I tell them, you know, I made mistakes, there's no doubt about that as a as a player. So um, you, you share those. And, and having been through all those experiences, it's always handy that you can actually talk to a player about a different experience he's encountered in the game or, or off the ground. Now, uh, I mean, I've, there's some great stories in your book. One of my favourite stories is from the 1999 World Cup where you write about the failed booze ban that started at the beginning of the World Cup and then was summarily dispatched when the results didn't go your way. What was that like? Oh, it's no good when you can't have a beer. I'll give you the strong tip. Um, but <laughs> this day and age, I mean, it's different in those days. I mean, the guys don't hardly drink these days. Uh, you know, they're totally professional in what they were doing. Not saying we weren't professional, but, you know, we always like a beer and enjoy ourselves. Um, so it's a fine balance. It's, it's like um, curfews. I don't think they work. We're all adults. And we have our lives to live. If you make mistakes, then you, you, you either don't get selected or you have issues that way. So, you know, I think that adults to, to run their own life. Yeah, I think um, what was interesting about that story is that, you know, if you have too many rules and players can't relax, that it just affects the playing group. So it's, I guess you've got to find the balance between making rules and letting players run their own life. That's right. You've got to find that um, you know, happy balance. And that, that can be tough at times because where you're touring affects what you do sometimes. So, yeah, it's a challenge, but it's a good challenge. So everyone's good and buys into it and away we go. Now, I just before you go, I wanted to ask you about the role of the team psychologist. I found that really interesting that you wrote about the way the team psychologist has come into the team and how he works with them and how you were talking to your psychologist about you, re you really love your players. How is that relationship having a psychologist in the group? Oh, I think it's really important, mate, because obviously you know, players got to have a confidence they can speak to that, that we don't know about, and that's okay. Um, you know, there's issues that go on in people's lives that, that we wouldn't know about as a coaching team, and we have that guy, you know, he, he's a fantastic operator, and, and he, he's very confidential, and he talks to the players and helps them through a lot of different issues, whether it's on-field or off-field. So it's always good to uh, have that sounding board. Now, I use him a lot because, obviously, I, I've got a lot of issues trying to help players and working out what the best ways to go. So sometimes that little guidance is always good for you, um, and I think it's important for the players to have that someone they can, you know, fall back to. You touch on in the book the dual roles of being the coach and a selector, and I guess this is where the psychologist might come in that it can be someone who's, you know, totally neutral to, to talk to about emotional things that they might not feel comfortable talking to you or Steve Smith about. That's right. Um, so yeah, we're not qualified to talk about that. Yeah, we can talk about our life experiences, but we have someone that's qualified to actually help and deliver that to the player, which is, which is pretty important. Yeah. Now, 
Before I let you go, I just want to ask you, what is it like seeing your son, Jake Lehman, running around for South Australia and, and treading the same paths that you tread not so long ago? Uh, it's exciting. It's nerve-wracking as a dad, first and foremost, and uh, you know, I always hope he does well. Uh, but it's exciting for him. He's done it all on his own. His dad's been away his whole career, so he, he's going about it the right way, does a good good job and, and works hard, and that's all he can do. So it's great. You know, really nerve-wracking when I get to... Uh, uh, get to watch him, but yeah, it's great fun. And and do you find that you're do you like coach him a little bit? Do you give him tips, or do you just step back and just let him sort of seek coaching somewhere else? Uh, as a dad, I, I give him a little bit of advice here and there, but most of the time it's about him, uh, you know, doing the things he does well. Um, so for me, it's a it's a catch twenty two. Don't get too involved, but give him the advice when he asks for it, and, and offer some little hints along the way. Yeah, it must be exciting to think that he might be playing in, in the Australian team in the next couple of years while you're coaching. Yeah, you never know that. Uh, yeah, if he, if he got there, I'd probably, I'd probably have to do something else. <laughs> I know you've said that if he comes up in the selection table, you'll leave the room. I guess you'll have to deal with that when it comes. Yeah, yeah, that, that happens. Yeah, yeah, you have to deal with it when it comes, mate. That's all I can do. Well, Darren, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, good luck with the rest of the seasons. Are you looking forward to the one-day series against the Kiwis coming up? Yeah, we are, mate. So looking forward to that. Starts this week. Looking forward to a good performance from the one-day guys. And thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Darren. I, I recommend your book, Coach, to all the listeners. Bye-bye. Thanks, mate. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series. Sports Social Podcast Network.